Baptist Church and of our campus in Lexington, Kentucky. It is our prayer that as you listen today, you will be encouraged, challenged, and equipped to be all God has for you. We invite you to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at either 8.30 or 11 o'clock a.m. at our Todd's Road campus near the Hamburg area of Lexington. And now, may you be blessed as we give our attention to the reading of God's Word. I invite you to remain standing in body or spirit for today's Gospel reading, which comes from Luke chapter 14. A large crowd was following Jesus. He turned around and said to them, If anyone wants to be my disciple, you must, by comparison, hate everyone else. Your father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. And if you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. But don't begin until you count the cost, for who would begin construction of a building without first calculating the cost to see if there is enough money to finish it? Otherwise, you might complete only the foundation before running out of money, and then everyone would laugh at you. They would say, there's the person who started that building and couldn't afford to finish it. Or what king would go to war against another king without first sitting down with his counselors to discuss whether his army of 10,000 could defeat the 20,000 soldiers marching against him? And if he can't, he will send a delegation to discuss terms of peace while the enemy is still far away. So you cannot become my disciple without giving up everything you own. Salt is good for seasoning, but if it loses its flavor, how do you make it salty again? Flavorless salt is good neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown away. Anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray together, would you? God, once again, we thank you for this day and for the opportunity to gather as your people. And we pray, oh God, that uh, as uh, we have already sang and affirmed and heard from your word, that you would continue to move in this space as you see fit. Have your way in this time. Speak to our hearts with words of comfort, words of healing and wholeness, but also, Lord, words of challenge, places where we can be convicted even. Use this time for your glory and for your kingdom's sake, for you truly are our king and our redeemer. May the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. For you, O oh God, are the rock, the rock we cling to. All honor and glory is yours, most high and holy one. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, amen. Um, how many of y'all, um, how many of y'all remember 2004? <laughs> that was a while ago. Um, Anybody remember uh, a guy who was running for uh, the presidential nomination on the Democratic ticket by the name of Howard Dean? Any Howard Dean people? Um, January 2004, Howard Dean was, was, was making a name for himself. Quite frankly, at that time um, in January, we thought this guy had come from nowhere as a governor from a small state and was really going to do something. Um, got into the Iowa caucuses. He was expected to finish dead last. And he came in third, very close contested race in 2004. Um, and it, it, 
we thought, oh, goodness, we're going to see this guy on the, the political landscape for a while, at least in the Democratic Party, potentially even in the, the national spotlight. And so um, I remember watching this going, wow, this is, this is interesting, this energy he's got. And Howard Dean was feeling it. And right at the caucuses, he had that rally. Some of you are giggling because you know what's coming, don't you? He had the rally. And he got up there, and he was excited, and the crowd is cheering him on, and he goes, we got third here, we're going to go to New Hampshire, and we're going to go to New Mexico, and we're going to go here, we're going to go there. And he named off like 12 different states, and he goes, and we're going to go, and we're going to go. And then he, what does he do? He goes, yeah! Do you remember that? It was the yaw that went round the world, right? Because in that moment, in that yaw, um, well, Dean lost everything, <laughs> His future was toast, man. The momentum that he had up until that one moment, to that one going off script, filled with passion, filled with excitement, moment of yah, it was like a cup of water on a black top in the middle of July. Oof, gone. Uh, the passage that Chad read for us just a minute ago is a 2,000-year-old yah. And I think Jesus knew exactly what he was doing when he says it. Think about it. Jesus has been traveling with his disciples. Uh, the little nation of Israel is all in Jesus' fever. All right, there's a little dude following along with a push cart with Jesus. I like Jesus buttons, right, and flags. And the crowds are massive. They're absolutely huge. And this group that follows him, they're called, they're called followers, He's now a master group of people that have they've gone just from sitting on the edges. They want to follow Jesus. This group gives him standing and gives him credibility. It gives him some clout that he needs to, to really make some changes. I mean, after all, that's what we want him to do. We want to make changes with Rome. We want him to make changes with the religious elite system that's so broken and all over the place. But instead, in this moment, with these crowds, what does Jesus do? He yaws. <laughs> He looks at him and he says, if you want to be my disciple, you got to hate everybody else. Father, mother, wife, and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you can't be my disciple. <clears throat> now, if Jesus was running for a political office today, we would probably, it would be hard to paint him as the pro-family candidate after that speech. Wouldn't work. What in the world is Jesus thinking? Again, he's on the upswing. It's looking like his message that he's been sharing is catching on and people are taking notice. This is not the time to isolate people. This is not the time to say something really, really dumb. And what does Jesus do? He says something really, really dumb. He looks at his group of followers and he actively invites them to go home. It's not the only time that Jesus does this, that he isolates his crowds. It won't be the last seems like routinely over his ministry, Jesus finds, he speaks down and chases off these large crowds that start to get around him. Or, or he just leaves them high and dry where they can't find him or they can't follow him. Like when he goes walking on water, a little difficult for the crowds to do that. What made 
help as we've been exploring this relationship between rabbi and disciple throughout the month of November is to look at that relationship again and go, wait a minute, what's really going on? See, for a rabbi in Jesus' day or age to say, um, to, 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 to do this kind of thing, to make this kind of statement wouldn't have been a shocker. See, Jesus' life, a rabbi was in a, a title of affection. It gave a, a person, um, someone that you want to emulate that person. It's a sign of great respect. To have someone of influence in your life was and, and continues to be a big deal. And this relationship, even back then, was one that was unlike most any other relationship that we can speak of. So much so that even a hundred years before Christ, students uh, who would follow this holy man, who would learn from him, they were actively asked to make some very shocking and strange choices. For instance, one command from the Midrash, which is a collection of oral rules that were, were, were built upon the scriptures, one, one command said that you were to choose your rabbi over your own father if the two were drowning. says this, rescue your teacher first and then, if possible, <laughs> your father as your rabbi has taught you much more than a life skill. Whoa. Followers of a rabbi were instructed um, to pay a ransom when a family member and their rabbi were kidnapped. Pay first for the rescue of your rabbi and then your family if you have the money. Now, um, I read that and I'm really thankful that I get to be a pastor because you all got to choose me over everybody else. No, that's crazy talk, right? I mean, who would sign up for this? But in a culture where shame and respect, respect means a whole lot more and a whole lot different than it does today, those instructions were, were supposed to show what the relationship of teacher and student was to be. It was a relationship of such depth that everything else became secondary. Jesus says, hate all these others. He's asking for a very normal rabbi-disciple relationship that in those days the crowd would have understood. But hate, man, we don't like that word, do we? It's the exact opposite of what Jesus' love all message is all about. So to understand what Jesus says, we need to do a little archaeological digging, a little language work. Translations are tricky St. Jerome, who translated the scriptures into Latin, was known to have said, I either destroy the meaning of the text or I make the words readable when dealing with the original languages. Now, Jewish idioms, like English idioms, are difficult to translate. They can sound like something very literal, but that hidden meaning can have something completely different. Uh, in, in nature. In, in Hebrew and in Aramaic, to hate something certainly can mean pure hatred, like we might hate our rivalry. Ha 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 But it can also mean choosing one thing over, and all, over another. It all depends on the relationship. Um, Genesis 29, uh, there's this great story of Jacob and Leah and Rachel. You all remember Jacob, Leah, and Rachel? Jacob has, he, 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 he wants to marry Rachel, but he's tricked by his, his father-in-law to marry Leah first, and he's got to work more time, and he, mar he marries two sisters. Bad idea. 
But we're told in, in Genesis 29 that Jacob loved Rachel but hated or despised Leah, depending on your translation. Now, the, the question's got to be asked, does Jacob really hate um, Leah, at least in the way that we think of hate? Well, the first thing to do is look at the outcomes. I mean, for goodness sakes, Jacob and Leah had seven kids. Not a lot of hatred going on with seven kids. He also blesses Leah as his first wife, which is a big deal in that custom. In this, this, this season of life for the Jewish people to bless is a big, big deal. His sons with Leah would lead the family into the future. Jacob loved Leah, but he favored Rachel. He preferred Rachel over Leah. He didn't loathe the woman, but he did choose another love over her. No wonder that family was so messed up, right? Jesus, in talking to these followers, these disciples, is using a similar technique. The expectation is clear. To be one of his disciples is to choose him over everything else. It's to love our families for certain, but not at the extent of our love of God, our love of Christ, our love of being his disciples. When Jesus says, hate these family members, he's inviting followers to see that there's a choice that needs to be made. Some have even said that in the 21st century, particularly in America, the number one idol in our world is our family. So for many of us, we hear this and go, whoa, Jesus, (laughs) that's ancient stuff. We have moved on. (sighs) Maybe it's even more important that we hear this call from him today. We have a choice to love one over another, and Jesus is calling it to be him. Then Jesus compares being a disciple to a construction project. Who builds a building without estimating the cost? Something we're familiar with, right? Chad and I were just talking before the service. Three years ago this week, we got our bids back. And three years ago this week, Your pastor went gray in certain spots that weren't gray before I came here, right? What followed that time period was a serious look at what we wanted, what we needed, and what we felt we could afford. And in a few months, we'll have a building to rededicate and a finished project, but we already know that costs are going to be something that we have to discuss. And Jesus is saying, following him is a lot like choosing to build a building. took us three years to get right here, plus the years prior to me coming. There are costs, there are benefits in making a decision as big of a deal as this. How often have we said, oh yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus, I'm a Christian, but we haven't taken into consideration that, man, this is like building a building. There's a lot that's on us. This is a call. I used to tell my my youth and youth ministry, it costs you nothing to be a Christian, it'll cost you everything to be a disciple. Getting ahead of myself. Then Jesus talks about going into a battle. He says a ruler won't pick a fight unless he knows he can win it. One of my favorite scenes in the movie Braveheart is when they're on the, the battlefield and, and Wallace is on his horse and he's getting the crowds all worked up and, and they go out to parlay to have their meeting to discuss terms and Wallace says, uh, his friends goes, what are you going to do? He goes, I'm going to pick a fight. I love that. Because what Jesus is saying is, um, if we're going to follow him, we can't just go picking fights. <laughs> 
we got to know what's in front of us. And, and, and we got to know that to follow Jesus is to know that we think he's worthy of going into battle with. That crowd was, that crowd was not going to follow if they didn't believe. And what Jesus is saying in that is he's using kingship language, which would have been really shocking for them, probably more than the love me over your family language. The idea of king that Jesus is using there can't be missed. Early on, Jesus and his disciples and and a good bit of the followers understood that following him meant more than he was just a good teacher, more than he was a miracle man with a traveling food truck. Towards the end of the book of Acts, we even see that the message was so real that Jesus was a king That in order to become a Christian, there was a very clear expectation. Devotion to Jesus was more than just asking him into their hearts, which is not a biblical concept. Instead, they were to say something as they came to go to the waters of baptism. Anybody want to guess what it was? I'll tell you. In Greek, it's Yosukurios. Yesu Kyrios. In Hebrew, it's Yeshua Hamashiach. In English, it's Jesus is my king. That was the altar call for generations. And when Jesus is king, as Chad reminded us in our prayer, that means we're choosing him over everything else, every other loyalty, every other thing. In fact, everything else we have decided to put to the side. To declare that Jesus is king also means that there's a price to pay. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was executed for taking part in a plot to execute Hitler. He was also a devout lover of Christ, of the church, and a pacifist. Yeah, put those two together. Pacifist who was executed for trying to execute Hitler. In his book, The Cost of Discipleship, he warns the church of something called cheap grace. An idea that lulls us into something much less than what Christ intended for us. You see, a fan of Jesus loves cheap grace. It doesn't cost much. A follower might even think it's a good deal. I give my heart to Jesus. I go to church until he returns, but I don't really expect anything to change. That much will happen here and now. That's for something coming. I want to say this very clearly. That's not what Jesus expected of his followers. You see, a disciple of Jesus is involved in making the world what God intended it to be. He or she is much more than a pew sitter on Sunday morning. A disciple is someone who believes, despite what the battlefield may look like, that our king is capable and able and his kingdom can advance. A disciple chooses over the systems of brokenness that are so prevalent around us. A disciple takes on the mantle, the way of our rabbi, of our king, and says, he says I can be like him, so I'm going to choose to be like him. He expects us to be like him. He believes that we can be like him, and he's empowered us to be like him. How how many of you all have ever heard, boy, So you're just like Jesus. Anybody? Oh, that's a shame. Because that's the expectation of Jesus. That someone would look at us and they would see the face of Christ. Man, Jim, you're really stepping on toes. Mm -hmm. Bonhoeffer warned about cheap, cheap grace. He paid 
uh, the ultimate price, his own life for accepting the cost of discipleship. There's a flip side to measuring the cost of being a disciple. It's what Pascal would say, his, it was Pascal's wager. Anybody know who Blaise Pascal is? Philosopher? He, he would, his famous theory would say that to not follow God, to not believe in God, to not think that he is this king might be more costly than it is to actually follow him. In the 1930s, Pope Pius XI created a new season in the church calendar. And um, it's filtered, it's, it's got its way down even to us here in Andover. Um, the season was called Kingdom Tide. We are finishing the season of Kingdom Tide this morning as we end the liturgical year on Christ the King Sunday. Now, the purpose of this season, the purpose of Christ the King Sunday in the 1930s was to highlight the church's social responsibility in the present age, in the world that it lived in, to urge churches to actually work for peace. Sounds like a great idea, doesn't it? You know, obviously in the 30s there was a lot going on. We had just ended one world war. We were on our way. All of Europe was bubbling and boiling in preparation for a second. And the Pope understood that things were not getting better. In fact, the Pope kind of had this thought process that it was hard to see that Jesus is king when everything is going so bad. So it must mean the Pope's thought process was is that Jesus' kingship is not yet. He will be king one day. Do you see the danger in that? Christ the King Sunday became a Sunday for longing that one day Jesus would be king and he would return and set things to right. And there's a problem in that thinking. Jesus said the cost of discipleship, the invitation is that he is king now. Not just in the future, that's true, he will return. Woohoo! He will make everything right. But he is on the throne now. No matter what the world around us says, the great challenge in the church isn't whether God exists or how to stand against this or that. It's to determine if we believe that he is king now. It's to choose to follow him when the world looks like it's all going to Hades in a handbasket. It's to choose his way of life, his love of other, his passion for purity, his quest for holiness, his obsession with justice and mercy over all the other loves and rulers that say it can't happen. And what's happened by moving Christ the King, which is really Ascension Sunday, to the end of the year when we're expecting Jesus to come back and be king? What happens? Well, the world gets a whole lot darker. Loss becomes a whole lot greater. Um, the brokenness in our families and our systems of government seem to get a whole lot greater because we don't act as if he's king. When all uh, the time Jesus has said, I, I've given you the glove, I'm giving you the power, I'm giving you the opportunity to go in there into the, to the oven and pull the cookies out, to go after it, to reach out and to, to share my love with a lost and broken and dying and hurting world. What happens if we don't choose Jesus as king? Well, the battlefield seems a whole lot more overwhelming. Our family's in peril and, and they're struggling. They're, they're much more bleaker without him. 
Christ the King Sunday has to remind us that he will come back. He will make a second advent, but it, it, it's also to say, it's, it's to tell us here and now today that I don't care what the world looks, I don't care what CNN or Fox or MSNBC says to us, he is king. And so, follower of Jesus, act like it. It means to get up off of our butts. Can I say that in church? Just did, yeah. It means to get up off of our rear ends and to go after it and to live as, as he's called us to live. To be the hands and feet of peace. To bless when, when it looks like it's recklessness. To love until it hurts and then to love again. I asked the first service, uh, I, I had a Howard Dean moment. I'm going to do it again. Um, I'm going to go yaw. Um, anybody tired of casual Christianity? I'm exhausted by it. A casual Christianity that says, okay, I'll go to church and sit here and put up with Jim for 20 minutes unless he runs long, which he probably will. Anybody else tired of a casual Christianity that, that reads the book of, of Scripture and goes, man, I wish that was here today when Jesus says, it can be, it should be, I'm expecting it to be. just need the church to wake up. just need the church to realize who's still on the throne. need a church to realize that it's not in some election in which we say, oh, everything's going to be better now because we elected this person, this party. We get to be the change. We get to be the political, the, the, the movement, the spiritual movement that looks at the world and the politicians come to us and go, what are y'all doing? We want to get in on that. Because we're so filled with the love of Jesus that it shocks everybody. Follower of Jesus, beloved of God, his expectation for you, I don't care how young you are or how old you are, his expectation for you is to be just like him. That sounds daunting and scary and overwhelming. Congratulations. But it also means he's given us everything we need in order for that to happen. Choices. Will we drop to our knees and we will say, will we say, Jesus, you're my king. Are we able to lay down all the other allegiances and hear him say, follow Lord Jesus, we thank you um, for this reminder and for this series in which we've got to explore what it means to be a disciple. Lord, it's, it's my prayer that we would hear you say, follow me. We would embrace that calling, that we would know the costs of that calling. But we would also be tired of what it means for us to, to reject that. We'd be exhausted by, by apathy and by casual Christianity that just ain't getting it. 
And so, Lord, I ask this morning as, as we've talked and shared and explored and we've heard your words of challenge that not a single person will leave this place today overwhelmed, but we would leave this place filled with your spirit in such a way knowing that you have made it happen. Lord, help us to rise each and every morning with a look in the mirror to say, Jesus, you will be my king. Not just in the future when you come back, but right now, no matter what anybody else says, you're my king. Lord, equip us and empower us to be your army ready to move forward, to be your peacemakers ready to extend peace, to be your blessing givers, to be your people who love recklessly. We love you. We honor you and we give you thanks. Majestic one, our King, King Jesus. It's in your name that we offer this prayer. And all God's people said,